0: Hello, my name is Janet Hernandez, and I'm a freshman here at Goshen College. On behalf of the Center for Intercultural Teaching and Learning, I would like to welcome you to our convocation, Social Activism in the 21st Century. I'm honored to introduce the co-founder of the United Farm Workers and the president of the Dolores Huerta Foundation, Ms. Dolores Huerta. The Dolores Huerta Foundation is an organization building to building fair and equal access to health care, housing, education, and jobs for disadvantaged communities. She started her civil rights work with Farm Works in 1955. <clears throat> Farm workers were not noticed nor treated fairly until Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez co-founded the United Farm Workers Organization. Because of her community organization skills, she was able to assist in legislation that protected the rights of farm workers. She was also instrumental in the passage of legislation that allowed individuals the right to vote in Spanish and the right for individuals to take driver's license tests in their native language. Her accomplishments and awards are numerous. She, was six, she has na- six schools named after her, and she also has six um, honorary doctorates. Uh, she, received, she also received the Eleanor Roosevelt Human Rights Award from President Clinton. And I heard that she is willing to fight for what she, has belie- she believes, uh, even though it means going to jail 20 times and beaten by the police once. She continues to speak for justice and equality for human, right, human, human beings. This morning she'll be addressing the issues about social activism in the 21st century. Please help me welcome Ms. Dolores Huerta.
1: Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? Okay, good. Uh, thank you very much, Johnny, uh, for that introduction. And uh, thank all of you this morning for coming so we can share uh, these moments together. Uh, today I'm going to be talking primarily about uh, how important it is to be involved in elections. I've got a button on that says vote as if your life depended on it. And for a lot of people, of course, it does um, a lot depends on what we do, especially in Uh, The richest and the most powerful country of the world, uh, if we participate uh, in our electoral process and why it's important. And I'm going to just give you an example of how, uh, in today's world, uh, people are suffering because of actions that took place over 70 years ago. And I'm going to talk specifically about the farm workers. You know, back in the 1930s, they passed a law called the National Labor Relations Act. What this law did is it allowed all workers to come together and form a union, a labor organization. Before that law was passed, if workers got together like in this room today, we could have all been arrested for illegal assembly, but when that law was passed in 1935, it said it's okay for workers to come together uh, to complain about their conditions if they were not happy and to uh, put pressure about, through strikes, et cetera, on their employers to get an organization. Well, when they passed that law, with three little words, they left out farm workers. Those three words were, "except agricultural workers. And when they asked the past president of the Farm Bureau Federation, why did they leave out the farm workers? He said, because they were Mexicans and coloreds. That was his answer. So right off the bat, there was a straight racist reason. So because of that, then the farm workers were left out. And even to, in today's world, as we go throughout the country, we find that farm workers do not have even the basic rights that other workers have. And I would probably venture to say probably here in the state of Indiana that they don't. So in order to try to change that, Cesar Chavez and I started organizing farm workers. And we were able to get, get improvements in farm workers' lives. Just to show you how, how bad things were for workers, when we started organizing, workers didn't have things like drinking water. They didn't ha- have toilets in the field you know that's so dehumanizing and uh, especially for the women so they didn't have unemployment insurance they had to follow the crops from state to state because there were were no such thing as food stamps um, at that time uh, for workers and we were able to get those benefits for workers plus the right to organize but in the process of course there was a lot of sacrifice we had in addition to all of us going to, to jail many times and people getting beaten um, we also had some of our people who were killed, <clears throat> and our first martyr was a young woman, a young student like yourselves, she was only 18 years old, her name was Nan Friedman, she was a young Jewish woman from Boston who went to Florida to help any farm worker strike there, uh, sugar cane worker strike in Florida. After she was killed, we had another farm worker, Naji Daifala, a young Arab, he was killed in a strike in, <clears throat> in Delano, California, he was hit on the back of the head uh, by a sheriff's deputy then dragged on the ground uh, until he got a concussion. Then we had another martyr, um, Trufino Contreras, who walked into a field to talk to strike breakers and was met with a hail of 80 bullets. Uh, Juan de la Cruz, who was standing on the picket line with his flag and a labor contractor came by and shot him in the heart. And of course, Rene Lopez, the last one, a young man, only 18 years old, who had organized his company uh, to vote for the union. This is after we got the law passed, the workers could organize and, and, and vote for a union at their company. After the election, uh, the uh, owner's brother-in-law and a goon that they had brought up to work against the union, they called him over to the car. They said, Rodney, we want to speak to you. He put his head to the window. They pulled out a gun and they shot him in the temple. So it took a tremendous amount of sacrifice to get the benefits for workers that they have today but only those that are covered under union contracts because of the rest of farm workers are still, as I said before, uh, very much um, subjected and still do not have any of, of, the, of the benefits that the farm workers in California have. So we were able to get that law called the Agricultural Labor Relations Law. And How did we do that? Well, of course, the workers went on strike. Farm workers went out all over the cities. I'm sure some of you in this room, maybe your parents told you Don't, you can't have any grapes or you can't have any lettuce because the farm workers are boycotting. And uh, Because we had 14 million Americans that stopped eating grapes and supported the farm worker boycotts, that we finally got the growers to come to the bargaining table and sign those contracts. It took the direct action of the workers you know, to, by their marches, by their strikes, by the boycotts, But in addition to that, the workers also went out and registered people to vote, went out door to door and got people registered to vote, and they were able to uh, get people out to vote. And so in getting uh, good uh, legislators elected like Governor Jerry Brown of California, you know, to show you the difference in terms of politicians, uh, Ronald Reagan had been our governor in California, and when the law passed uh, that farm workers should be able to get unemployment insurance so that they could get a check you know, when they were out of work, Ronald Reagan vetoed that law three times in a row. Jerry Brown, uh, who was then our governor in 1975, when we got Jerry Brown elected, we all worked very hard to get him elected. When that bill passed the legislature to give farm workers unemployment insurance, Jerry Brown signed the law. So it makes a difference, believe me, about who uh, is in charge. Now, when we think of the work that farm workers do, and today, each one of us are going to eat. And so we have a direct connection with farm workers, because you know as we're sitting here comfortably in our dining rooms, some farm worker family is out there in the cold, doing pruning, doing planning. In the summer, they're out there in the heat of the summer harvesting our food. And so one would think that they should be the most respected of all the people that feed us because they do the most sacred work of all, and yet they are so disrespected. And I love to tell students, if you were going to be on a deserted island like in Survivor, you know the television show, and you were told you could only take one person with you, who would you take, an attorney or a farm worker? <laughs> it kind of brings it home, doesn't it? But, uh, and, and of course, that's I think one of the things that's wrong with our educational system is that we really do not teach uh, about respecting people that work with their hands. You know, we're taught to respect professional people, but not the people that work with their hands. And when we think about that the, the uh, wealth of the world is created by the people that work with their hands. You know, whether it's the food uh, that, is, it, that is harvested for us or whether it's the clothes or our buildings that are made, these are made by working people, but yet we are taught to respect professionals and not working people. I just want to say to all of you that I know many of you are in college, you're going to get your degrees. When you get that degree, come back and work for the people that work with their hands. Because the people that are fortunate enough to be able to go to college and get a degree, you have an opportunity. But that opportunity should be used to make the world a better place. We, I know in our society, because we're very materialistic, we think, well, we, you know, I want to make more money, and uh, this is kind of the materialistic goals that we have in our society, but that is backwards, because if you make million a million dollars a year, you can only eat three meals a day. You can only wear one suit of clo- clothes a day. So we only have one life on this planet, so you know, we have to use that life to make the world a better place, the way that Cesar Chavez did. Um, Of course, a lot of the farm workers today out there that are food are undocumented. And we now see that there is like a huge anti-immigrant hysteria, and I understand even in this state right now, you have a law that is pending that will punish employers that hire people who are undocumented. And so we think, uh, what are these undocumented people doing, you know, besides harvesting our food? They're taking care of our children, taking care of our elderly, our disabled. You know, cleaning our buildings, preparing food for us, you know, building our buildings. They're working. The undocumented people that are in this country, the 12 million or so, are working. They're contributing to the society. And when people complain, well, why do these people come here? Well, let me just back up a second. First of all, we have to remember, unless you're a Native American, everybody in this country came here from another country, right? Every single person, you know? And except that before, it was very easy. If if your uh, parents came from Europe and they landed on Ellis Island, all they had to do was walk. If they could walk, they were admitted. In today's world, if you're trying to get a a relative over even a husband or a wife, it can take 10 to 15 years uh, from another country. So we've always had legalization from day one since this country was formed. So this is, when you talk about having legalization, a legalization process for the people that are here, it's something that we've always done. And then um, what are the contributions that they make? In addition to their sweat equity, the work that they're doing, they are contributing. They're contributing millions and millions of dollars to the Social Security system that they're never going to collect because as we know they say well they're identity thefts right because they have to use different social security numbers well you can't work in the United States unless you have a social security number so they do they use other people's social security number or they make up social security numbers but that money goes to our social security system that they're never going to to be able to collect in addition they pay local state and federal taxes and when they say well they're taking money uh, from uh, in services you know if you're, not, uh, if you're a U.S. citizen and you do not have health insurance, you're not going to get medical care anyway. So you can imagine that people who are undocumented are not going to get any medical care, unless they go to an emergency room. But um, it's very difficult. And the question that people do not ask is why do people come here in the first place? If you live in Guatemala, a beautiful place that we go to as uh, tourists or Oaxaca or Chapas, why would people leave their beautiful homes to come here and suffer? Well, there's no jobs. There's no opportunity for them. People are not going to starve. People are not going to starve. They're going to go where they have to go to feed their families. And we, uh, we are responsible for that. We in the United States, our policies. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror because we pass laws like the free trade agreements like NAFTA. There is more poverty today in Mexico and in, and in Guatemala than there was before NAFTA was passed. I was in Guatemala um, last year, and when I was in Guatemala, I saw all of these dull uh, banana trucks. You know, we all eat bananas. We all eat a lot of bananas. You would think, with all of the bananas that we eat, wouldn't the people of Guatemala be kind of wealthy, just for the money that we pay for bananas? But no, they're very much in poverty. So a lot of the a lot of the uh, The poverty is caused by us in the United States, by our corporations. And then we have NAFTA, which allows American companies to go into Mexico and Central America and put up their own businesses. And one Walmart, one Walmart that is built in Mexico, wipes out dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of shopkeepers. 85% of the people in those countries are small businessmen, small businesswomen. They have small shops. One Walmart wipes them all out. Then we have uh, these maquiladoras, these big factories. These are, there were hundreds of United States companies that built these factories in Mexico. We take out the natural resources of the country. We take out the profits and we leave the people behind as low-paid uh, low wage earners. Then we have agribusiness. We, with our tax dollars, we subsidize our corn. This corn then is dumped into Mexico. The small Mexican corn farmer who only hires 20 or 40 people cannot compete with American agribusiness. So we literally put them out of business. So where are the 2 million corn farmers from Mexico? They're here in the United States. Those are the undocumented people that we're talking about. Now let's compare our foreign policy towards Mexico, Central America, in Latin America, compared to what we did with Japan and Germany. After World War II, we had what they call a Marshall Plan. We defeated Japan and Germany. They were our enemies, but we wanted them to prosper after the war. So we lent them millions of dollars to rebuild their economies. So we have Sony, we have Mitsubishi, you know, we have Volkswagen. We have all of these German and Japanese corporations that were, you know, rebuilt with our American tax dollars. And then we said, you know what, you don't have to pay us back, just keep the money. Just keep the money. And this is so different than our policies towards Latin America, because what we want to do with them, take over their economies. I call it economic colonization, and this is why they don't like us. This is why they resent the United States. Now, Mexico and Latin America have always been our friends. They've never been our enemies. But instead of trying to help them rebuild their economies, we want to control them like we do with the free trade agreements. And of course, you know, our president has a big argument, a big fight with Hugo Chavez, the president of Venezuela. Well, Hugo Chavez has a really weird idea. He believes that the oil of Venezuela belongs to the people of Venezuela. Isn't that strange? But what would happen if we thought that way, right? Our oil companies have made billions of dollars and yet give very little back, give very, very little back. So uh, we have to kind of change the way that we think about the people that are coming, and we have to talk to our legislators, talk to our congresspeople about changing that whole attitude. Now, did, and some people say, why all of a sudden are the immigrants an issue? They weren't before well it's called election time our current administration has really kind of made a mess of things you might say you know here we have the war in iraq that is costing what they say now 3 trillion dollars it's going to cost money that should be coming to us here for education money that should be coming to us for healthcare we pay more for healthcare than any country in the world and yet we don't have universal universal healthcare right And that money's going up in smoke and killing people. And so they really do not have anything to campaign on. They haven't done a very good job. You know, before they attacked women, feminists, they were the evil ones in this country. Choice. You know, I'm a Catholic mother of 11 children, but that doesn't mean that I think everybody wants to have 11 children out there, right? You know, that is, of course, a woman's right to choose, a family's right to choose how many children they want to have. And then of course, then they attacked gays and lesbians. They're the big problem, right? Well, you know, if Thelma and Luis get married, does it affect your paycheck? It doesn't affect anything, right? These are people's uh, decisions of, of privacy, constitutional rights that people have. There's a great president of Mexico, His name was Benito Juarez, the first indigenous president. And he had a saying that I think every Latino family knows. And I'll say it in Spanish. El respeto al derecho ajeno es la paz. Respecting other people's rights is peace. You know, how many children a woman wishes to have is her business, right? You know, who someone wants to fall in love with or get married to is their business, their constitutional right, not anybody else's. And we can respect that. But, so these are the issues that they have used. They're called wedge issues. Well, that's kind of fading a little bit because they do find out that a lot of people are for choice and a lot of people do support uh, equality rights for everybody, including gays and lesbians, so okay let's attack the next vulnerable group, let's attack the immigrants. and This is really a racial thing because when they're talking about security and border security and building a fence along the Mexican border, no terrorists have ever come into the United States from Mexico. The only terrorists that came into the United States came from Canada. But you would not even consider building a fence on the Canadian border because all of our English speaking Caucasian people in this country would be very upset about that. But it's okay to talk about uh, building a fence on the Mexican border. So it's really, and then all of these deportations that we're having right now, you know, this is really called ethnic cleansing because the immigrants that they are focusing on are people of color. They're not focusing on uh, Caucasians. We know that. Especially in the Midwest, you have a lot of uh, undocumented people here from from Eastern Europe. When I go to restaurants and I speak to some of the waitresses or some of the people at counters and they say to me you know i 'm undocumented, but you know i 'm white, so it doesn 't make any difference right so this is actually what 's happening in our country, so we have to see this so The thing is, is if we, if we want to talk about social justice, then we also have to talk about political action and when I mean political action, I mean about what we can do uh, to, to, um, to make the world a better place. and, and One of this is, of course, that we have to, as the farm workers did, we have to engage in political action. Uh, I know that right now there is this bill I was talking about that will punish employers uh, for uh, employing undocumented people. This hurts the employers because employers need people. You know, in Oklahoma, they had this big anti-immigrant push, so thousands of undocumented and other immigrants, because I'm a Latina, and when you look at me, you don't know whether I've got papers or don't have papers, right? And I think every one of us who are Latinos have experienced some sort of discrimination when this anti-immigrant hysteria started. So a lot of immigrants left Oklahoma. Guess what? I was just in Oklahoma last week. They are having trouble finding workers. They've actually uh, suffering an economic decline because so many immigrants have left. So in this this state here, I'm just going to call upon all of you, especially those of you that want to do something about this, uh, to engage in some political action, and there's things that we can do. We recently stopped an anti-immigrant resolution in our city, in Bakersfield, California. If you know Bakersfield, Bakersfield is the home of Buck Owens and Merle Haggard, it's kind of hee-haw country. In California, but in uh, all of our city council people, we only had one Democrat, and all the rest were republicans and They put one of these anti immigrant resolutions, but we stopped it, and we stopped it from passing because what we did is we just really mobilized and i 'm going to you know with all of the student body that we have here, just the people that are in this auditorium right now, if each one of you were to write two letters, one to your state legislator, one to your governor, and say don't pass this anti-immigrant resolution. It's going to hurt our employers, it's going to hurt families, and it's going to hurt our economy. Okay, And so you can write letters, you can do a postcard campaign, get postcards printed up, and just take them to all of the uh, uh, classes here, have people sign them, uh, and dorms if you have them here, and send them to the governor and to your legislator. Uh, You'd be surprised how scared they get. If they get 40 letters, or 40 postcards, they get scared. You know why? Because every letter, every postcard represents 40 other people. You know, so, so they pay attention. Of course, emails. You can do a big email campaign. Get everybody to send them emails. You can do phone calls. Yes, you can even uh, get groups to go visit the legislators at their local district office, or go to your capital. Um, you know, just do a mobilization. Go to the capital uh, so that the governor will hear you. You can do a march. March through your campus, do teach-ins. You know, have people come in so you can talk about this immigrant issue and, uh, and see why it's wrong. Uh, do a press conferences. Set up a social, ju- social justice committee. This is what we did uh, in order to, to stop this immigrant issue. We had to reach out to other people in the community, some of our religious organizations and uh, other women's organizations, uh, to all come together. And we did press conferences, a whole series of press conferences. Uh, before we started our postcard campaign, uh, we did press conferences. Um, uh, get you know form coalitions with other organizations, and uh, and also you can invite your legislators here, have candidates forums, and this is really important. Invite them to come, uh, you know, from all political parties, and then you can ask them uh, directly how they feel about these, these issues. I think I might have mentioned doing marches. And another great thing that is really effective, and I think it's kind of since we're in this um, holy place here, is to fast. You know, have everybody do a fast. Maybe just one lunch, one lunch give up one lunch period, you know, or, or give up a whole day of fasting. And we do that fast for social justice. Our uh, leader, Cesar Chavez, you know, he was very good at fasting. He actually uh, did two fasts uh, one for, uh, one, he did one 25 day fast uh, for nonviolence. Uh, he, this was back in 1968. Uh, Robert Kennedy came uh, to, with Caesar when he ended that fast. He did a second fast uh, in 1972 when they passed a law in Arizona that farm workers could not go on strike. If they went on strike, they could go to uh, to prison for for six, uh, for six months. And if they said boycott something, they could go to prison. And his last fast that he did was for 36 days. This is water only. Just taking water and Holy Communion. He fasted for 36 days and uh, that was to bring the attention of the world uh, to uh, the fact that uh, so many children were dying of cancer and in uh, people all over the world were getting cancer from the poisons that they put on the food that we eat uh, in our farms. So fasting is also very effective in addition to it's a very spiritual it's a very spiritual uh, 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 it has a lot of strength and a lot of power uh, when you do a fast. So, I couldn't quite see that. Uh, How many minutes do I have? Uh, um, It's over? Okay. Okay, real quick. To fight the racism in our society, okay, and I'm sorry I didn't talk about our women's issues, okay? I'll have to come back and do that one, you know. We need women in every decision-making body, okay? I'll just make it that way. But to fight racism, we just have to remember one thing, okay? We are one human race, okay? What is the scientific name of our human race? Somebody. Somebody yell it out? Thank you. We are homo sapiens. We are one human race. Where did our human race begin? Africa, Africa okay? Our human race began in Africa. We went, across, we went across the planet, we went to Asia, our skin got lighter, to the Bering Strait, to the Americas, one tribe got lost, they went way up north, but it's really cold, and they got very, very white. Now they have to go to the beach and the tanning salon to get their color back, right? So we have to say to the KKK, Klikiks Klan, to the Aryan nation, to the Minutemen, get over it, you Africans, okay? <laughs> then, I just wanna close with this. We have to remember that we are one human family. We're all related, okay? We're all related to Mandela, to Dr. King, to Robert Kennedy, to Eleanor Roosevelt, to Cesar Chavez. And I want to share a word with you to remind us that we are all related, that we are one human family. And the word is Wolzani. It's a Zulu word. And it means the people are coming together. We are coming together to fight for social justice. So. Let's all say that word together. And don't forget to vote, okay? We have a big election coming up. So let's say this word, Wozani. Can you say that, Wozani? Wozani. Okay, now let's do it all together. I'm going to say one, two, three, and we're all going to shout Wozani so that we can all fight against all of these isms that they, you know, try to separate us with, okay? So I'm going to say one, two, three, and let's all shout Wozani and raise this roof, because remember, when we get an education, our voices have to get louder, not softer. Wozani, let's go, one, two, three, and shout. One, two, three, Wozani! Thank you very much, thank you very much. <clears throat>